What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of being mortal by Atul Gwande, illness, medicine, and what happens in the end. We are all mortal. We all are going to die. We're all going to have family members that are going to die. We're all going to have pets that are going to die if you've got pets. Uh, that one just popped into my mind. But uh, it's a vitally important thing to think about that almost nobody ever does. Yeah, it's one of those things that we never talk about to each other, what is going to happen in the end and how we're going to handle those situations. So this book, I think, is relevant to every single person listening right now. It might not be relevant in this moment right now, but there will come a time in your life where the things we're going to talk about, which is pretty deep and in many ways quite morbid to listen to and read this content, but it will be very relevant to you one day. Doctors learn about a hell of a lot of different things in medical school, but mortality isn't one of them. Although they're given a dry corpse, a cadaver, in the very first semester, that's purely for the purposes of learning about human anatomy rather than learning about aging, frailty, or dying, about how the process unfolds, about how people experience the end of their lives or how it affects those around them. Yeah, there's no one in medicine to deal with these final stages of life and how to do it in the most humane way. Atul's got a story of his first example and his first patient as a medical intern. Uh, one day he was treating a man called Joseph Lazaroff and he's a city administrator. So he was in his 60s suffering from an incurable cancer which was in his prostate and at this stage he'd lost more than 50 pounds. So he's losing a lot of weight in his abdomen, his scrotum and legs and they're all filled with fluid. And one day he woke up and couldn't control his legs, he couldn't control his bowels and the cancer had spread up his spine and it was, his, it was compressing on his spinal cord. So the cancer at this stage is taking control of his whole body. It couldn't be cured, but they hoped, the doctors hoped that they could treat it. So the option was for emergency radiation, which they chose and it failed to shrink the cancer. So the neurosurgeon from here offered two different options. You could either do comfort care or surgery to remove the growing massive tumor from his spine. So Atul, he was waiting outside trying to figure out what's the best approach to break this news to somebody. There was obviously, there was hope that the operation could halt the progress, it could chop out some of the cancer, it could uh, stop it from spreading to his spinal cord and damaging him and paralyzing him, but it wouldn't cure him, it wouldn't reverse any paralysis that had already set in, and there was really no way to get back to his old life that he had before. So no matter what he did, whether he went the comfort care option or whether he went the intense surgery option, really at most he had... A few months to live and this procedure it was inherently dangerous it meant cutting open his chest cavity removing a rib collapsing a lung to get through to his spine there was going to be a lot of blood loss there was going to be a very difficult recovery and in this weakened state he faced considerable risks uh, that there could be debilitating complications there could be infection which is always a risk and so that was the the option that was presented to him so lying in his bed Lazarus he looked grey and the time had finally come for him to make the call whether to do the surgery or go to comfort care. So he was sitting there with his son and they were both told of all the serious complications, paralysis and stroke and all of these things that could be fatal with the surgery. And his son questioned his dad. He said, look, you know, are these heroic measures really a good idea? Should you get this surgery? But then Lazaroff looked at his son and said, don't you give up on me. You give me every chance I've got. And he was adamant about doing absolutely everything he could to fight this cancer. Yeah, he wanted to do everything he possibly could to fight for more and more. And 
Atulga one day, he believes that Mr. Lazaroff chose badly in deciding to go the surgery route. Now, it wasn't a bad decision because of all the risks and dangers that came with it. Obviously, they are trade-offs and things that you need to weigh up. But Gawande says that the operation was a bad decision because it didn't actually give him back what he wanted to get. So if it goes poorly, obviously he, he dies on the operating table. If it goes well, the thing that he was hoping to get, he doesn't actually get anyway. He's not going to get his continence back. He's not going to get his strength back. He's never going to get back to the life that he'd previously known, which is really all that he was chasing. And interestingly, the operation actually was a technical success. So the best possible scenario happened with the surgery. Over 8.5 hours, the tumor was taken from the spine, but he really never recovered from the procedure. And this was always going to be the case. In intensive care, he developed respiratory failure, a systemic infection, blood clots, and every day he felt further and further behind and finally had to admit uh, in his final days that he was actually dying. So if you think about the oncologists, the radiation therapists, the surgeons and the doctors, they'd all seen him through months of treatments for a problem that they knew could not be cured. They couldn't bring themselves to discuss the larger truth about his condition to Joseph Lazarus or the extreme limitations of their capabilities. So what they were all pursuing really was a delusion. Joseph was pursuing it and so was the doctors. The chances of him making it back to his old life were zero. So modern science and modern medicine has profoundly altered the course of human life. People are living longer now than in any time in history, but scientific advances have turned the process of aging and dying into this medical experience. These are matters that are to be managed by healthcare professionals rather than letting nature run its true course. So this true course is going to be for death for all of us, And this is something that's not really a failure. It shouldn't be seen as a failure. It should be seen as something normal that's going to come to everyone. And it might be the enemy, but it's also the natural order of how things work. It's something we kind of blind ourselves from. There's a late surgeon, Aswell quotes here, Sherwin Newland, and in his class, How We Die, he wrote, the necessity of nature's final victory was expected and accepted in generations before our own. Doctors were far more willing to recognize the signs of defeat and far less arrogant about denying them. There's no escaping the the tragedy of life, which is that we are all aging from the day we are born. From the day we are born, whilst we're getting older, we're getting one day closer to an eventual and inevitable death. The profession of medicine has succeeded because of its ability to fix. There are lots of problems that pop up in our health that doctors have solved and doctors have been able to fix. But there are some problems that are just not fixable. Yeah, and this is what this book's about. So there is a lot of surgery and a lot of intervention, which is really good by the doctors, but there are those times when you've got terminal illness and the writing's on the wall. And when it comes to those situations, the medical profession and all of us, we're not actually always approaching these situations in the most optimal and best way. So this book is about the modern experience of mortality, about what it's like to be creatures who age and die, how medicine has changed the experience and how it hasn't and where our ideas about how to deal with our finitude have got the reality wrong. The waning days of our lives are given to treatments that addle our brains and sap our body for just a sliver chance of benefit of the long tail that miraculously we might recover and get these things that are impossible to get back. Medicine and public health have transformed the trajectory of our lives. For pretty much all of human history, except for the most recent couple of hundred years, death was a common and ever-present possibility. It didn't matter if you were 5 or 55, every day was just a roll of the dice. 
a tool describes a, a graph with time on the horizontal axis and life and health on the vertical axis. And basically, every day, your life and health is like flat. It's going along. You're happy. You're positive. And then one day, your health drops off a cliff and you die. That's when you get hit by some mysterious illness and you go from completely healthy to completely dead. Yeah, man. I reckon I could think of a handful of times where if it wasn't for modern medicine, I'd be done. Uh, same for you. I think both of us in Indonesia, we've both had some pretty serious infections <laughs> on the skin, oh, yeah. which are growing and growing. And then, mate, if it wasn't for antibiotics like 100 years ago, mm. that'd be the end of us. Yeah. I caught malaria as well when I was about 14. That would have been, a game, that would have been game over as well. Well, isn't that a lifelong thing? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, I've got it. So, if there's a mosquito in this room, mate, be careful. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, over the years, as the medical profession has progressed i mean anything that life throws at you now a lot of the time medicine's got some good answer for it so over the years we progress and the bottom that used to be just a quick sharp fall it kind of is drawn out to be later and later and later so the likelihood of death from infectious disease especially in early childhood and clinical advances reduces mortality of childbirth and traumatic injuries throughout your life so rather than this nice happiness and then this instant drop-off it becomes almost like a gradual step down and it is really drawn out where any time some kind of condition pops up, there's a treatment for it. Uh, each time, if you have symptoms pop up, the medical professionals can get it under control and you go back to this normal life where you're not feeling sick. And so, this gradual slow decline progresses over a number of years and decades rather than just an instant drop off a cliff. Yeah, so this trajectory of medical progress is allowed... Most of us really reach a full life and get to old age, which is really fantastic. But old age isn't a diagnosis. There's always some kind of proximate cause that gets written down on the death certificate, like respiratory failure, cardiac arrest, or something like that. But in truth, no single disease leads to the end. The culprit is the accumulated crumbling of our bodily system. And then whilst the medicine that we always keep using, it kind of just does patch jobs uh, to the very end. Yeah, one day says it's like it take a car in for a service and they you know they change the brakes out and they uh, give you an oil change you're saying that similar here is that you know if you if your knees start to wear out they can replace a joint if the the there's blood pressure is too high they can give you medicine to bring it back down if uh, a valve in your chest collapses and they can go in there and put an artificial thing in there to hold it open there are all these little fixes that we do to solve all of these individual little problems that pop up with age yeah, but day by day for all of us, our body's just going to decline and creep like a vine and these patch jobs have become more frequent and probably uh, at some stage going to be less and less effective. But day by day, these crumblings of our body systems are really imperceptible. Then bang, something happens to make it clear that things are no longer the same like it used to be. It's interesting that he says here that death is not what the elderly fear. So probably maybe when we're young, we probably feel fear death but Gawande says that as you age and I guess get closer to the inevitable, it's not death that is the main fear anymore. It's actually what happens just before death. It's the things like losing hearing or losing memory or losing best friends or losing the way of life. These are the things that the elderly fear. One patient even said that old age is just a continuous series of losses. So with a bit of luck, you can manage these losses for a long time, but eventually they're going to accumulate to the point where life's daily requirements become more than we can physically or mentally manage on our own. Uh, we do not think about this eventuality that's going to be coming, and as a result, most of us are really unprepared for it. 
So old people typically believe that a good life is one of maximum independence, but that is precisely what old people in nursing homes are denied. In nursing homes, if you think about, if you walk around in one, I was in one not too long ago, but all these people they they had a full life before this nursing home, and you sometimes forget that like they were teachers, shopkeepers, housewives, factory workers, all kind of things. They were these completely able people, and then in the nursing home, a lot of them have completely lost independence. And I think the people when they were fully able a few decades before, if they saw what the state and, and state of dependence they were in the nursing home, it would really shock them and frighten them, I think. Yeah, independence does seem to be one of those things that throughout all of Gawande's stories from his experience in the medical professional, dependence was a bad thing. Independence was something that people were seriously after and that's exactly what was taken away from them in some of the more traditional systems. He tells a story of a place called the Chase Memorial Nursing Home and he says that they literally brought life in to their nursing home. This one new person came along with a whole bunch of ideas who wanted to push the boundaries and uh, they, you know, he just said at this meeting, what are some of the things that we can do? And he proposed some of these, all these crazy ideas. Some of the people that have been there forever said, that's, that'll never get allowed. The board will never sign off this budget. He said, let's just, let's just brainstorm. We'll put some ideas down. And from this crazy meeting, he ended up, they got a hundred birds, four dogs, two cats, a colony of rabbits and a herb garden as well. And so there was all this stuff that they brought in that literally brought life into this nursing home and changed the way that the people lived. Yeah, there were even people in the nursing home that the nurses thought couldn't speak and lost that ability. All of a sudden walked up and started saying things like, oh, I'd like to take the dog for a walk. Mm. And all the birds, they were adopted by single residents. And because of this, the lights turned back on in the residents' lives, even the ones with some of the worst forms of advanced dementia. There's a guy called Gus, even with advanced stages of Alzheimer's, he really enjoyed the birds, so he walked around and listened to their singing. And he asked, he even asked the uh, the birds if they could have some of his coffee. <laughs> well, the, the, what researchers actually found was they studied this place for two years, and the difference of this facility compared to, I guess, the other facilities that didn't bring this in, and they found that psychotropic drugs for agitation decreased. Uh, the total cost of drugs and medicine fell by thirty eight percent compared to the neighbouring facility and deaths even fell by 15%, just from a few small changes to bring a bit of life back to this place. It makes sense. If you think about their purpose to live, if every day there's a reason to get up and take the dog for a walk or take care of your pet bird or anything like that, you've really been given a reason to live, albeit maybe a simple one, but it's at least something. Compared to the nursing homes when there's no reason to live and you're just going and you're trailing off and you're just losing your independence day by day. I read the book Ikigai, uh, which I tried to get on the podcast, but it just didn't have enough juice for a nap. But that was a, what the, the book did was they researched into the blue zones of the world, you know, the types of small populations that were consistently living beyond 100 years of age. And really the main thing they found was you need this reason to live, this reason to get up each morning and something to do. As you say, mate, most nursing homes, if there's no reason to get up, people stop talking, they don't interact mm. with each other. And here, with a simple reason to live, someone else to care for, an animal to care for, something else to do, people started talking that they thought had lost the ability to speak, but they just had nothing to say. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, man. And like some people would look at, say, deaths fail by 15%. That's fantastic. And giving a reason to live, reduce the death rates for the disabled elderly. But really, what I was all saying, that's not the best and the most important thing at all. 
the most important finding is that it is possible to give people at these stages a reason to live, period. Mm. And you can imagine that, you know, deaths fell by 15%, but what about the quality of life of the people that were there? It's not just that they were dying less, it was also that I'm sure they were enjoying their lives a lot more in those later years as well. So, the Chase Memorial Nursing Home provided all the residents an opportunity to grab onto something just beyond simple mere existence and they took onto it hungrily. Now, the problem with all the other medical institutions is that they do not hold any kind of correct view about what makes life significant for these people. And the problem isn't that they've got the incorrect view. The problem is they've got no view on it at all. Mm, The focus of medicine is too narrow. The medical professions, they concentrate purely on the repair of physical health. They don't think anything beyond that. They don't think about the sustenance of the soul. So, it's sort of this painful paradox that they're just fixing the minor physical problems that pop up, but they're not addressing maybe the more spiritual or the more holistic problems that the elderly are facing each and every single day. So, all our tools really asking and for the older people in these situations near the end is just remain as much as possible to be the writers of our own story. Over the course of our life, the story is going to change and we might encounter really unimaginable difficulties and our concerns and desires may shift over time. But whatever happens, we really want the freedom to shape our lives. This is why the betrayals of the body and mind that threaten to erase their character and memory remain the most awful tortures of all. And the professionals and institutions we turn to should not make this worse. It brings us to a paradox, really, in that as people's capacities wane, whether that's through age or ill health, making their lives better often requires curbing the purely medical imperatives. So, it means resisting the urge to try to control everything. It means resisting the urge to try to fix all the little issues that pop up. So, it's a really tough decision in that, you know, when should you try and fix something and when should you not turn to those medical imperatives and focus on the quality of life instead? Yeah, think about Joseph Lazaroff, the story at the start, the real terminal illness where the cancer was creeping in a lot of parts of his body and he was sitting there with his son and the doctors came in and they had to make the decision. I mean, like, what do we want Joseph to do in that stage? He's got a kid he's got to look after. And then also, what do we want the doctors to do at these moments? It's like an unfathomable problem that you have to face, whether it's uh, you yourself, whether it's somebody who you're responsible for caring for, whether you're a doctor who is trying to fight on behalf of a patient as well. There's just, you know, how, how could you decide whether to fight and take on the other medical interventions versus uh, not fight and maintain that quality instead? The issue has gotten attention in recent years for reasons of expense and those managing healthcare budgets and where to best put their resources because healthcare is really becoming the greatest threat to the long-term solvency of most advanced nations and the incurable count for a lot of it. I mean, there's a lot of baby boomers hitting that age now Mm. in retirement and there's for the first time ever going to be a disproportionately less amount of people trying to support the healthcare costs of, of those approaching that age. Well, he says that in the US, 25% of Medicare spending is on 5% of the patients who are in their final year of life. So, the 5% of patients who are in their final year of life are getting 25% of the Medicare spending. And most of that money is going for care for people in the last couple of months, trying to eke out that last little bit of benefit where they've got weeks or months to go, but a disproportionately high number on the medicine that might be taking them away from living their final days. 
Yeah, for a patient whose cancer proves fatal and it's terminal, the average cost in their last year of life is $94,000. And the medical system is great at trying to stave off death with these final stages with $12,000 a month chemo, $4,000 a day intensive care, and $7,000 an hour surgery. But ultimately, death is going to come and a few are good at knowing when to stop this care. In 2008, the National Coping with Cancer Project published a study showing that terminally ill cancer patients who are put on things like a medical ventilator or given electronic uh, defibrillation or chest compressions or admitted to near-death intensive care, they actually had a substantially worse quality of life in their last weeks than those who didn't receive any of those interventions. And they also found that in the six months after the patient's death, their caregivers were three times more likely to suffer major depression than somebody who didn't go through those final interventions and struggles. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's like the interventionist bias of the medical profession to wean out those final months and actually do something. Doing nothing is clearly a better choice in that they can actually probably ironically live a bit longer by doing nothing. But probably most importantly for the patient, the caregivers are, as you said, three times less likely to suffer major depression. I mean, imagine if you've got a real loved one and their final days are fighting, 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 and you see them deteriorate to such low levels. I mean, that would be much more difficult to watch than, say, the alternative that Atul's talking about. Well, what you end up doing is you lie attached to the ventilator or something that's keeping your lungs going or something that's keeping your blood pumping while every single organ starts to shut down. You realize you're never going to leave the fluorescent lights of the hospital. And what it means is because you're strapped up, the end comes with no chance for you to happily live your last few days to say goodbye or I'm sorry or I love you to those people around you. If you're in that moment and you've got people who care on you and then you hear about a story online somewhere where someone beat the exact same thing that you're going through, as small as the probability, you're probably going to feel like you're going to fight, fight and fight, mm. which is understandable. But there's also another option which actually might be superior and that is hospice. So the difference between medical care to the very end, like we were just talking about, and hospice care It's not the difference between treating and doing nothing. It's simply in priorities about how you're going to handle these final part of your life. So the ordinary medical care, the goal is to extend life by whatever means necessary. But what comes with that is often a sacrifice quality of your existence right now. So it might be surgery or medicine or chemotherapy or some kind of intensive care. You're sacrificing your quality right now in the hope that you can extend your life later. What hospice does instead is they have nurses and doctors and chaplains and social workers. They come not to extend the life right now, but to focus on the immediate quality of life to help you see out this fatal illness with the fullest possible life right now. So usually the person who's going to help you make this decision is the doctor who's taking care of you. But there was a study that asked doctors of almost 500 ill patients to estimate how long they thought their patient was going to survive. And interestingly, the doctors, 63% of the time, overestimated their survival time and 17% underestimated it, but the average estimate was 530% too high. And this is probably the information that they're passing on to the patient and Mm. giving them higher expectations about what the reality is going to hold. 
Of these doctors that were studied, 40% of the oncologists admitted to offering treatments that they believe were unlikely to work because I suppose it would be a tough thing if the patient wants to fight, they want to find any option possible, any different way to fight a little bit longer. The doctor doesn't want to give up. The doctor doesn't want to say that there's nothing they can do. So everybody wants to just keep fighting and keep offering different alternatives. Yeah, there's there's always this very long tail of possibility, however thin, and the patient is just looking at that. So kind of like what's wrong with the patient just with that little slither of hope that they might actually fight this and be in the minority who beats it? I suppose that's the thing is that, uh, you know, there might be this one option for extra treatment and you're hoping by this one miracle you can get an extra 10 or 20 years of life. But often what it is is, yes, that I guess is a very, very, very small possibility, that extremely long but thin tail. More often than not, you're going to be somewhere in that short head where uh, you know the extra intervention doesn't do anything or it gives you an extra week or an extra month, but very rarely do you get that miraculous extra two decades that you're hoping for. So yeah, there's, there's no issue with looking at this long, thin tail of probability. Only if you really prepare for the outcome that mm. is actually going to be much more probable. Yeah, he says it's like we've created this multi-trillion dollar uh, medical system that's really just pumping out lottery tickets. Most people just look at that long tail, they think, yes, they can win the lottery, but very few resign themselves to the fact that it's very unlikely that they might get that winning ticket. Yeah, our bias here is to just fight, 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 to die with the chemo in our veins and the tube in our throats or the fresh sutures in our flesh. And the fact that we may be shortening, ironically, or even worsening the time we have left, it doesn't really just seem to register. We imagine that we can wait until the doctors tell us that there is nothing more they can do, but actually there's always something that mm. the doctor can do and intervene in some way for that long tail. So the doctor's bias and the patient's bias is always to fall back on this default. Just do something, fix something, and is there any way out of this? There was another study this time from 2010 where they looked at 151 patients who had stage 4 cancer. So that's like the, the final stage where there's very little hope left and half of these people received the usual oncology care and half of them received the usual oncology care but with additional visits from palliative care. So these palliative care people, they're the specialists in preventing or relieving some of the suffering. So the people in the study who were visited by the palliative care practitioners, they were the ones who discussed their goals, their priorities and they discussed, you know, what are some of the options they'll be presented with if their condition worsens. And the result of this study, they found that those who had consultations with palliative care specialists, they stopped their chemotherapy sooner, they stopped fighting sooner, they entered hospice care far earlier, they experienced far less suffering at the end of their lives, and as a result, they actually lived 25% longer than those who kept fighting. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? So those who were the bias for intervention and fight, 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 make any kind of surgery, actually live 25% less longer than those mm. who, who admitted into hospice and palliative care much earlier. So in other words, really, our decision-making medicine has failed so spectacularly, we are actually inflicting harm on patients rather than confronting the subject of their mortality. So that was a, a study, I guess, of you know 151 people, but... Gawande tells a story of a, a very specific, a young 29-year-old man who'd been diagnosed with a, an intense brain tumor. 
And so the oncologist met with the family and they had discussions, but it didn't go so well. The doctor was hinting towards hospice and recommending that they were, in a sense, running out of options and that perhaps the best way to live out those final months would be in something like palliative care or hospice care. The son's father said, look, there must be something you can do. There's got to be something. And he'd, he'd gone and uh, you know searched the internet and found all these three or four different treatments that they could try, different experimental drugs, different things that people were testing out. Uh, but what the doctor said that none of these were really going to be on that miraculous level that turned him from a 29-year-old with a brain tumor to eventually being one day an 89-year-old who's had a good life. So what the doctor recommended instead was that rather than you know spending all this time trying to search for the miracle, trying to search the internet for that radical new experimental procedure, instead time would be much better spent together. Time was completely limited with their son and the man, the young man who was going to need his father's help to get through it. And so the best recommendation wasn't to go down the experimental procedure route. It was actually to focus on that time of uh, quality of life over that final month they had together. Yeah, and later after the inevitable happened and the tragic story of the 29-year-old man dying, the father did thank the doctors in that situation for helping him through that moment because he was able to spend those last moments with his son in a totally different context, in a totally different way. So the simple view is that medicine exists to fight death and disease and that is, of course, its most basic task and death is the enemy but really sometimes the enemy has got superior forces and sometimes it's eventually going to win and it's clear. And in the war that you cannot win, you don't want a general who's your doctor who's going to fight to the point of total annihilation. You want someone who knows how to fight for territory, knows when it can be won and knows when to surrender when it can't. And this general who understands that the damage is greatest if all you do is just battle and battle to the bitter end against that superior force and that superior army. The medical field today is increasingly filled with generals who march their soldiers onward and constantly march their soldiers back into battle. They say, look, you tell me when you want to stop, otherwise I'm going to keep fighting. Uh, Whereas obviously the patients, people only die once. They don't have any experience to draw on. They don't have anything they've learned from previous times that they can realize when is it time to stop fighting. They should be looking to the doctors to get a bit more guidance rather than being the general who's going to fight, fight, fight. We need more doctors who are willing to be the generals who know when it's time to surrender and know which types of territories to focus on fighting for. He ends with his story in 380 BC with two generals who wanted to find out from Socrates if they should let their boys fight in armor. So one, Nicholas, he thought they should, and the other, Lucas, he thought they shouldn't fight in armor. So it was really a question of courage. And Socrates, he pointed out that there are times when the courageous thing to do is not to persevere, but to retreat or flee. And there are sometimes there is time to endure and keep moving on. So there can be times where there is foolish endurance. So what they landed on was courage is wise endurance. Now, there are at least two forms of courage that are required in aging and sickness. The first type of courage is the courage to confront the reality of mortality, the courage to seek out the truth, and the courage to seek out what is to be feared and what is to be hoped for. Now, the second type of courage is the courage to act on all those truths that you found. So physics and biology and accident ultimately have their way in our lives. They're going to hit you at some point. But the point is that we are not helpless at the same time either. 
So courage is the strength to recognize both realities. Yes, we had the power to fight, but at the same time, at the end, physics and biology are going to have their way. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you got something out of that episode, please go ahead and give it a share on your platform of choice.